Hi all, I'm KK Mulholland, and today I'm going to explore Jewish philosophy after the Holocaust, what changes occurred between the modern and post-war period, and where different thinkers agreed and disagreed on these topics. I'm going to be discussing these topics through the lens of The Quarrel, which is a film by Eli Cohen. Based on a 1952 short story by Hein Grad, The Quarrel centers on an old yeshiva classmate from Bialystok who run into each other in 1948 Montreal after both assuming the other didn't survive the Holocaust. Chaim Vilner is now an agnostic Yiddish writer while Hirsch Rassiner is a Rebbe and just established a new yeshiva in Montreal. Chaim's decision to leave the yeshiva destroyed the men's close friendship and they haven't seen each other since. The Holocaust made both men more rooted in their original stances on religion. The horrors they witnessed deepened Hirsch's relationship with God, while Haim distanced himself from Judaism. The film does an incredible job of distilling very complicated theological arguments into a discussion between old friends. The literary scholar Edward Alexander remarked, if we had to select a single work to stand as a paradigm of all Holocaust literature, a work of sufficient generalizing power to contain within itself not only most of the religious, philosophical, and artistic questions that the Holocaust raises, but also the whole range of conflicting answers to them, we could not do any better than to rely on Grad's story. Through its natural dialogue, the quarrel demonstrates how fiercely survivors, Jews, and all people held oftentimes conflicting views on the meaning of the Holocaust. Joining me today is my classmate, teammate, and good friend, Emily Washburn. Hi, KK. Thanks for having me. She's going to help break down the philosophical concepts presented in the quarrel. Before we jump into analyzing these quotes, I'll give some more background on the concepts we're going to cover. Post-Holocaust Jewish thought mainly wrestles with the idea of theodicy, or the justification, rationalization, and acceptance of a relationship between God and suffering. Basically, theodicies look to answer the question of why is there suffering in the world and why do bad things happen to good people, especially in the presence of you know, what should be a loving and just God. Zachary Braderman, who is a professor of modern Judaism at Syracuse, explores the roots of theodicy in the Hebrew Bible and Midrash in his book, God After Auschwitz. Braderman also coins a new term to describe how Jewish philosophy changed after the Holocaust, which he calls anti-theodicy. Anti-theodicy is simply the opposite of theodicy. It's a rejection of the relationship between God and suffering and is characterized by outrage and anguish at any God who would allow or inflict that much pain onto humanity. After witnessing the horrors of the Holocaust, there was a profound shift in how Jewish thinkers understood pain, suffering, and evil. Historically, theotic explanations were the mainstream and accepted narrative in these circles. Um, theodicies had backing from traditional texts like Deuteronomy, which preached a kind of just desserts version where the sinful are punished and the righteous rewarded, and that's it. Another example is the world to come theodicy, which emerged from the book of Job and argues that suffering is God's way of preparing his people for the next world to come.
I think for many Jews in a post-Holocaust world, these explanations, or really any explanation for that much suffering, felt insensitive and almost downright wicked. The Holocaust left people at like a complete loss in how to continue their faith in such a seemingly senseless God. This led to a large variety of answers, which we can see snippets of in the Quran. With that being said, let's kick off this discussion. So this first quote is the first time in the movie, really, that Haim and Hirsch start intensely discussing their philosophical differences. Um, And it starts off with Haim talking about this idea of an overcoat that Hirsch keeps bringing up, that God provides overcoats in the form of blessings um, to deal with the suffering of the world. And he kind of ends it by then questioning, hey, why did we survive the Holocaust and not either of our wives? Where were their overcoats? Of course. Well, first you marry, then a child comes. Oh, maybe two. Hmm? Boy, girl, oh, life takes root. You are happy. Hmm? God has provided an overcoat. Hmm? Yes? Yes? Yes, yes. And friend you return home one day and your family is no longer there they've been taken out and murdered in the name of what innocence your life is shattered too much even for a jew and you talk of god providing open how in the name of any kind of justice can you continue to believe in this cruel god of of course i believe you Chaim, can only imagine a believer having faith in the middle of a beautiful forest with oranges you can't imagine that god also exists in desert and with desolation what do you want that i should believe in the greatness of god because only he or not a human being could bring such destruction you see miracles in catastrophes you see them everywhere every minute how else do you think that we survived what else is there for people like us rage there is rage Earlier you said, God hasn't become an orphan. We have. You were saved. You say it was a miracle. What about Fisher? Where was her miracle? Where was my wife's miracle? So from this exchange, um, it really sets up the overarching conflict between Haim and Hirsch, which is between anti-theodicy and theodicy. Yeah, Haim openly rejects God's responsibility in the Holocaust, and he even offers, like, rage as, like, an alternative solution to believing in God anymore. Um, it's literally like Braderman wrote the character himself. Right. And meanwhile, um, Hirsch represents the theotic and religious perspective as he's remained in his rabbinic position. Um, Haim doesn't really give Hirsch much time to get a word in here, but we'll hear more about his position later. In this next quote, the men talk about the fairness of the Holocaust, and whether it can be seen as a punishment or a just one at that. Sinai, God made a covenant with the Jewish people. At Auschwitz, we broke it. It's so easy for you to criticize. The Germans are entirely guilty, but we Jews, we are not entirely innocent. The Jews wanted to become like other nations, and so we broke our covenant with the God of Israel, who came down and prophesied to Ezekiel that he will not allow it to happen, and he swore by his life, by his life, that he will come with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath. Since when is punishment for assimilation death by gas? God's ways are very hard to understand. I am. There is an explanation for everything. Well, then you- 
So this quote showcases a large portion of the like theodicy versus anti-theodicy argument, uh, which is basically like who is the guilty party in suffering? Like do humans always get blamed for their misfortunes or can we hold God accountable for like having a hand in bringing suffering to the world? Uh, in the quote, Hayim argues that God broke the covenant with he made with Israel um, by allowing the Holocaust to occur. And this position kind of reflects Richard Rubenstein's argument of the death of God. Uh, according to Rubenstein, the Holocaust was such a horrific point in Jewish history that the God that God can't exist in the same capacity afterward. The traditional God of like law and the covenant is dead to him. And Hirsch um, actually thinks the opposite, arguing that Jews broke the covenant by assimilating into Western society and therefore they felt his wrath. Um, and this is a theotic approach. Um, it doesn't dig deep for an explanation, but accepts that um, he cannot know all of God's thoughts. So in this quote, Hirsch lays out what he considers to be the biggest difference between Haim and himself, um, whether or not they believe reason is moral or not. Um, this kind of leads into a discussion of, you know, the having faith in human beings versus having faith in God. What is it really that separates us? Hmm? You look at people. You see their potential for good. I look at people, the same people. And I see their potential for evil. You believe that if people would only follow their reason, that would be in the best interests of everyone. I believe that if people follow their reason, it would lead to disaster. Who are you leading? The wise men of Athens. Ever since the Greek philosophers, people believed that reason alone could lead to morality. How can this be? Reason alone is amoral. To the most moral Greek, it seemed perfectly reasonable to take a newborn baby that was unhealthy, put it outside to die. In other words, reason is a tool. When a, a German did nothing while his Jewish neighbor was being shipped off to the camp, he was only doing what you or I would do if we were just following our reason. His life was in danger if he helped a Jew. Preserving his own life was a reasonable thing to do. And those few heroes who did help, it wasn't reason commanding them. So, how do we protect ourselves if reason fails us by relying on something higher than reason? If a person does not have the Almighty to turn to, if there is nothing in the universe that's higher than human beings, then what's morality? Morality is a matter of opinion. I like milk, you like meat. Hitler likes to kill people, I like to save them. Who's to say which is better? Do you begin to see the horror of this? If there is no master of the universe, then who's to say that Hitler did anything wrong? If there is no God, then the people that murdered... The people that murdered your wife and sons did nothing wrong. So in this quote, Hirsch argues that reason is immoral. And if we only judge actions by reason alone, there's no evil in the world. It's only, you know, decisions based off of the most logical option 
kind of erase any morality from those decisions. Um, I thought this was a really interesting quote to contrast with the first one we heard with Haim, you know, questioning what what about you know, our wives? Where were their miracles in the camps and why did they survive and he didn't? And Hirsch kind of flips the narrative and says, well, listen, those things happen and it's terrible, but we can't abandon religion because of it. We can't abandon morality because then it makes those acts okay. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting counterpoint to uh, his first claim. And it shows that, you know, people didn't really know what to think. There was no clear answer in these arguments. This quote also shows um, Hirsch's like just total loss in faith in humanity. It feels like a really bleak position for him to take. Um, he, it seemingly, it goes back to that argument of who's to blame in this situation. And it, to me, it seems like he thinks humans are a hundred percent capable for their actions and should be held accountable. And by that, he means I can't be a part of that world I witnessed. And I have to turn back to God and to the safety of the yeshiva and Judaism. Um, And I think Chaim's response, which we're about to hear, will be a really interesting counterpoint to that, um, where he kind of takes the opposite approach. Beings must help each other for our good and for our survival. For people who have this faith, it does not matter whether they believe on God or not. For people who do not have that faith, that belief, they'll use their brain to justify whatever they want. So here we hear Haim's argument that uh, humans must help each other to survive for our good. This is an example of Fackenheim's 614th commandment not to give Hitler any posthumous victories and especially Levinas's expansion of it to include all to include all humankind. Haim asserts that regardless of religion, all people must help each other and actively battle evil in order to survive. So this last quote kind of brings their whole conversation to an end and asks the question, what's next? How do we resolve this? Look around you. We are living in a broken world. In Bialystok, maybe I could have taught them that the Torah had 70 faces of truth, each face a different reality, but not now. Yes, now. We are a devastated people. This is precisely why we should talk to treasure each other like you would treasure a rare jewel. Be tolerant. These children are our last hope to save what we once had in Bialystok. Don't want any part of your vision. The world on one side. We, the chosen people, on the other. We are. God chose us. Yes, God chose us to be burned, to be slaughtered, to be hanged. He also chose us to keep the Torah. Fine, let me tell you something. When I was lying on the ground in the camp, and the German was kicking me with his boots. If an angel of God had come down and bent and whispered in my ear, Hersh, Hersh, just give me the word, and in the twinkle of an eye, I will turn you into the German. I'll put his uniform on you, I'll give you his murderous face, and the German will become you. If an angel of God had given me that choice, do you hear me, Chaim? I never, never would agree. The German's boots on my face, I could, with God's help, survive. 
But if I have to pull his mask on my face, that would choke me like I was breathing gas. When the Germans screamed at me, you are a slave? I whispered, Master of the Universe, you have chosen me. In this clip, both Haim and Hirsch acknowledge that the Holocaust altered Jewish reality deeply, but they disagree on how to proceed. Yeah, Hirsch wants to distance himself and his community of God's chosen people from the terrors of the rest of the world. While Haim thinks that in order for the Jewish people to survive, they must accept reality and those who are no longer religious and join the rest of the world. And this last quote really shows how difficult being Jewish after the Holocaust was. Um, at this time, there aren't any clear answers on how to proceed with your faith once you've witnessed such a tragedy. Thanks so much, Emily, for joining me. Thanks for having me, KK. <laughs> that difficulty we just discussed about, um, you know, how to be Jewish after the Holocaust, I think really reflects Elijah Berkowitz's, um, you know, thoughts and works after the Holocaust. He really was stuck in the middle between understanding and empathizing with those who rebelled against God after the Holocaust and those who deepened their faith. Um, and I think Berkowitz's ideas and arguments really fit with how Haim and Hirsch understand Judaism and have the role that Judaism plays in both of their lives. Neither is wrong. There's no real right or wrong answer to this quarrel. Um, there's no winner in the quarrel. It's just a reflection of just how complicated and complex these questions are and how deeply they're felt by both sides. So today we talked about Jewish thought in the post-Holocaust world and discussed the topics of theodicy and anti-theodicy and what those looked like to Jewish thinkers at the time. Um, and then I think seeing those concepts translate through the quarrel really gave me a better understanding of, I've said this a lot of times throughout the past 20 minutes, but just how intense these questions and arguments were between people. It literally was th such a life-changing experience for people, and no one had a, a clear and, you know, correct in air quotes answer of how to proceed, or there there was no guideline. And I think both parties come with an under, like, you can understand where both of them are coming from because it's just so, you know, mind-blowing, the events of the Holocaust. But thank you so much for listening to me today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did making it. And have a great day.